we have the activity patterns and the connectivity patterns. And so if it works, then we would say maybe we understand more uh, directly how the neural populations are interacting because there's actual this empirical constraint of the connectivity. If you don't have that, then it's an optimization problem and there's a lot of different solutions that would lead to the same predictions without saying that's actually how it works in the brain. Do I think that this is the real connectivity like they use in models? And I said, I don't know, maybe not, but I should try it and see, you know, and then I've been surprised, you know, that it, you know, these things, I'm sure there's going to be limits to it, but it does seem to be some sort of equivalence there. This is Brain Inspired. Hey everyone, it's Paul. So often, as you know, I have on the podcast people who use deep learning models to understand brain function. So generally, the idea is that you train a model to perform a cognitive task and then compare what's happening in the model with what's happening in the brain. And often, as in the case of a convolutional neural network, the models are built and designed to roughly mimic different brain regions. So if you're building a convolutional neural network to study the ventral visual processing stream, then you will build your layers to mimic the various hierarchical layers in the visual stream, like V1, V2, V4, etc. And of course, there are lots of other networks like recurrent neural networks that don't necessarily mimic brain areas, but are still trained to perform a task. And again, you can examine properties of the networks and compare them with brain properties. But the underlying theme with these approaches is learning. You're training the network. Not so (laughs) with my guest today. Michael Cole runs the Neurocognition Lab at Rutgers University. So I knew Mike back in graduate school. We went to graduate school together, as you'll hear, and he's gone on to do great things, as you'll hear. So Mike has always been interested in cognitive control and our human ability to flexibly adapt and control our cognitive behavior. So you'll hear some about that today. But the main topic that we talk about is his recent work building network models that are kind of like deep learning models, except for two important differences. One of those differences is that the models are built based on empirical brain network data, both structural and functional. So the way it works is he puts someone in an fMRI scanner, he records their brain while they're performing a task or just resting, and measures the activity flow between different regions of the brain. Then he builds a network model, and instead of training the model, where the weights between the units get adjusted over the course of long periods of training, Mike uses the functional connectivity data to just assign weights between the nodes. So he builds models that can perform tasks without training them. He calls these models network coding models and or empirical neural networks, and that's the main thing that we talk about. But of course, We talk about plenty of other things. I I joke in the podcast that Mike hates learning, but that's not true. He actually started his career. His PhD was about learning, as you'll hear in the beginning. So I link to the papers that we talk about in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 116. And Mike also fields questions from a few guests like Kendrick K, Kanika Rajan, and Patrick Laurent. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you so much to Patreon supporters. Enjoy. Michael Cole, uh, you and I go back a few years. Welcome to the podcast. 
Yeah, thanks for having me on. So uh, we, well, I say we go back a few years. It's more like uh, I've just been admiring you from afar. I guess you were one year ahead of me in graduate school at the CNBC at yeah. Pitt and CMU. And you've gone on to be many years ahead of me, <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> I don't know about that. You're you're pretty, I don't know, like intellectually, I feel like. So I've been following you from afar, I guess I should say, um, in the form of the, the podcast. As soon as I heard you had this podcast, I started listening. I haven't heard all your episodes yet, so many, but I've, I've heard a, a handful. You. How dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I can, I can see that you've, really uh, uh expanded your horizons and i'm a little jealous that you have like the time and and uh i guess space to be having these really awesome conversations with such a variety of people well uh well today's topic is about uh the jealousy that i have for you and what you're doing so yeah focus let's focus on that <laughs> so back when i knew you um you were a cognitive control guy um mm. you know back with walt schneider or, or early on but uh, I'd like to just um, pick your brain about how you see your sort of career tra trajectory and mm -hmm. um, alongside that, just how your interests have changed uh, over time. Um, yeah, sure. So how far back should we go? Um, I actually got into cognitive control <laughs> in Mark Desposito's lab at UC Berkeley. That's where I went uh, to undergrad. And I didn't know much about it. Uh, when I volunteered in that lab, I, I mean, I, I learned about it in class because um, I was a cognitive science major. So that was some multidisciplinary major at UC Berkeley. Um, and I actually started out with more interest in psychology and computer science. And then I, I was forced to take these neuroscience classes that <laughs> ended up, you know, kind of shifting my interest toward, towards there. So I, I had this kind of computational and, and you know, cognitive psychology kind of bent to my interest in neuroscience early on. Yeah, I volunteered in Mark Desposito's lab. Um, so full-time RA for a, a little bit and then started working with Walt Schneider. And um, while I was there, I got more and more into computational topics, um, but kind of like indirectly, I guess. I could, I've, I've been reading papers and, and building little models for a long time, but not publishing much on that, but it's really shaping my been shaping my mm. thinking over the years. Um, and so uh, while I was there, um, so Walt, um, back in the uh, 1970s, had uh, come up with this controlled versus automatic processing dichotomy that really influenced things a lot. And, and so you would talk a lot about the real basics of like, what is control processing? What's automatic processing? And um, out of that, mm -hmm. I realized um, there hadn't been much exploration of one of the definitions of control processing as novel task performance. And so that led me into rapid instructed task learning, which is there wasn't much or almost any work done at the time when I first started thinking about it and, and talking to Walt about it. And, and so, yeah, that ended up being my dissertation. So that's technically, you know, almost by definition, cognitive control is just a different, it's not like conflict kind of stuff is typically talked about um, with cognitive control. Or so, so what, cause we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about um, riddle rapid instructed task learning. So mm -hmm. what is that? And what, you know, in the, in the sort of big picture, uh, what have you found? And I, and I know that mm -hmm. it has stayed with you th throughout your career. Right. 
Yeah, so RIDDLE stands for Rapid Instructed Task Learning. And uh, it's something that we actually do all the time in everyday life. So for instance, like playing a new game that you've never played before, like Monopoly, there's maybe some rules that someone tells you about the game and then you can rapidly integrate those all together and play this game. And it, it may sound kind of trivial because you know I'm using a game example, but it's really in everyday life. We do all sorts of things like cook a new recipe um, or use new technology. So it's not just about being able to understand the words, it's about being able to transfer previous knowledge into new context. So you get a new smartphone, you don't have to start from scratch and kind of do this trial and error learning. You can transfer knowledge that you already had and also um, have the instructions kind of prompt you on what kind of transfers to have um, different kinds of information that you've actually learned before could be relevant in a new context. And it's really interesting to me, both from a computational perspective and also just in terms of, I guess, I guess kind of contrasting humans with machines and humans versus animals. Um, the animals can't do it except for, mm. it turns out, as this is, I, I ended up adding this with a figure um, to my dissertation because I thought it was interesting. There's one uh, bonobo chimpanzee named Kanzi who can do it. Uh, so it's possible in wow. animals. Through, not not <laughs> like, through sign, right? English through, words, English words. Very simple little tasks. Yeah. English words. Yeah, he's, he's like a genius okay. chimp. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's possible. <laughs> wow. uh, but yeah, there's just like one genius animal that can do it um, pretty much. So the idea, right, is to have a massive set of different possible tasks that an organism or a machine could perform and yeah. then you instruct uh, whatever task to perform, you instruct it, and this happens just kind of interleaved, right? Where you say, do this task, all right, now do this task, now do that task, yeah. and the idea is you have to be able to switch between them, which takes a lot of cognitive control. Yeah, I mean, there is a distinction between the theoretical like topic or construct or however you want to put it of Riddle, which is just things that we do every day, like, um, I don't know, like get directions to go to a new grocery store or something or or kind of arbitrary things you could have people do like um i don't know sing uh, uh the national anthem while jumping on one leg or some, some things that you've never done before that you could clearly do <laughs> immediately there's this whole set of them but there's of course limits to that and, and so the problem was how do we translate that into an actual systematic way to research it empirically. And so that's where this cognitive paradigm that um, I developed with Walt started from. And that, the idea is this uh, cognitive task that we came up with to investigate riddle systematically. The idea is that we have these little tasks with three rules each. And the key is that we want them to be kind of arbitrary and complex enough that we're really sure that participants haven't actually done them before, so they're novel, right? Uh, there's something to be learned, but we also want them to be learnable very rapidly uh, for humans. And so we have uh, an example here would be both vertical left index. Those would just be cues that you'd see on the screen. And then what that means is if both stimuli are vertical, press your left index finger. So then two stimuli will come up, in this case, there are these vertical or horizontal bars. You see two vertical bars in this case, in this example. 
And so the answer would be true and you'd press your left index finger. And so we can swap out these different stimuli and different rules. Um, so another example task would be neither red left index. So that means if neither stimulus is red, press your left index finger. And so you'd press, uh, and if it's not true, you'd press your left middle finger. And then so you see like a blue vertical bar and a red horizontal bar. So it's not true that neither stimulus is red. So you press your, your left uh, middle finger in that case. And so, uh, you know, it's not super easy uh, to do, but <laughs> participants can do this on the first try, if you can believe it, uh, above chance. And the key is that we're moving across, you can think of it like a state space, right? You have all these different combinations of rules and it's systematically, we're systematically traversing it cognitively, right? In terms of information processing. And we want to be looking at the brain while that's happening. You can see the mm. brain updating in a systematic way. And we can do all sorts of things like look at changes in activity patterns and the functional connectivity patterns with task state functional connectivity. And then that's um, led to uh, what we call the flexible hub theory that we're really testing in some of these papers where um, we have these kind of control networks that um, are really highly distributed. And we found evidence that there have hubs in them that update global processing systematically as you perform different tasks like this. Say a few more words about flexible hub theory, because I'm not sure that we're going to uh, be talking about it a ton, but I think it's uh, neat and important. So can you just talk about that a little bit more about what it is and what you found? Okay, so the flexible hub theory is really building on some older theories. Uh, uh, one is called the uh, guided activation theory by Miller and Cohen. So that's back in 2001. And it actually goes all the way back to some artificial neural networks and the early 90s that were really focused on lateral prefrontal cortex and um, how they represent or it represents context or task rules. And uh, so what we've done with this theory is really expand that to entire cognitive control networks, so much more distributed. Uh, we're also emphasizing global brain connectivity or hubness, because um, we're really thinking about in a context of something like Riddle, you need to be able to rapidly update your global information processing. And so how is that going to happen? How are you going to even coordinate that sort of update? And so there's a, a lot of evidence from neuroimaging that these kind of control networks are involved in that sort of thing and also from lesion studies uh, from neurology and uh, neuropsychology um, so mm -hmm. if you ablate these regions you have major problems with things like riddle and uh, fluid intelligence generally uh, so that's one thing so we're really emphasizing the the connectivity here um, there's also flexible connectivity so we're looking at task state functional connectivity uh, how it updates um, uh, the connectivity, how the brain regions interact, update. And then finally, a more of a computational property is called compositional coding. So the idea is that you don't just totally update with new connections and new activity patterns. Every time you do a new task, you actually reuse uh, mm. activity patterns and connectivity patterns that you've done before. And the kind of the, the kind of format of the pro paradigm lends itself to this, right? Because we're reusing different rules in different contexts, making new task sets that have never been performed before. And you can see that a lot of the same information patterns are being reused when we actually look at the connectivity and activity patterns. So altogether, um, yeah, that, that kind of builds this theoretical framework that we call the flexible hub theory. All right. Well, take a deep breath because 
I'm going to play you the first guest question here. Okay, and, early. Uh, this early, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, because it's 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 from the rapid instructed task learning era okay. of your life. And I think you'll recognize who it is. I'll I'll say who it is after I after the question. Hi Mike, Patrick here. Big fan of your work ever since graduate school at the Centers for Neuroscience and the Neural Basis of Cognition in Pittsburgh. Wondering if you could share ideas on how Riddle could be used to study a couple of phenomena. On the one hand, free will, which I'll narrowly define as the emergence of an instruction rather than an explicit given instruction through language, perhaps synthesized by activity in another brain region or even a neuromodulatory process. So not quite a random goal, but rather an intended goal. Do free will representations, like the decision to go to a particular goal or perform a particular action, look like commanded instructions? And on the other hand, stubbornness or steadfastness, the preservation of instruction or goal in the face of distracting, disruptive, or even goal-related inputs. Do those representations look similar to the commanded representations? All right, Mike, we've only got um, <laughs> three hours to do this. <laughs> yeah, so that's wow. Patrick Laurent, uh, an old friend of both of ours, mm -hmm. who is the director of Emerging Technology at DMGT, which is a British private holding company. All right. Wow, what a question. This is, well, that, well, wow. Starting with, an, yeah, starting with an easy one, right? <laughs> right. That's why I wanted to introduce Riddle, because I knew yeah, that question right. was coming. Because so. question is about Riddle, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are a few things I could say about that. Well, one is that we could think of our ability to flexibly switch our goals into novel scenarios as like on a continuum with Riddle. So the way we, we've been studying it is just kind of taking the shortcut for uh, experimental convenience of giving the instructions and just having the participants like do this task correctly or incorrectly and systematically explore the space. But uh, I have thought quite a bit about what if we had the participants select their own tasks or explore some space of tasks and then I guess, yeah, that would open things up to more free will. There is a literature on task switching. So there's a relationship between all this stuff and task switching. So those would be between two familiar tasks um, uh, as opposed to a novel task. And there's a whole literature on if you let the participant choose whether to switch to the other task or not. And then there's different mm -hmm. brain responses to those two things. And, you know, it's not my exact area, so I, I can't really describe what the differences are in detail, but um, uh, they tend to be, from what I recall, in what we call cognitive control networks. So there's some kind of additional control processes that are involved in, in making that decision. Um, yeah, I I'm not sure what... What was the second part of the question? It was a it was a very uh, Stubborn, nuanced question. Stubbornness. stubbornness, right? Huh? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole literature on uh, perseveration with uh, that's related to cognitive control. So it's the inability to switch to uh, you switch the current rule that you're supposed to be applying in a given task. Mm 
it kind of gets stuck in one state. So I don't know. I, I kind of wonder if uh, stubbornness might be actually our <laughs> default and you need cognitive control and higher order cognition to kind of jump out of that, unless there's some kind of stimulus driven reward thing that would pop you out of, of the state. But yeah, kind of, I guess I'm trying to read between the lines. I think Patrick might be asking about, yeah, self-instruction kind of. And, and I, yeah, I, I think that is pretty compelling. Um, and maybe like an evolution when we evolved the ability to uh, represent these kind of task instructions in this really flexible way. We probably got both some ability to uh, think of novel tasks and, and perform them and also be instructed from others, um, either, either through imitation or uh, language. Yeah. With the rapid instructed task learning, I mean, like you already said, you create these artificial scenarios where you have to, um, it, it, where it's really instruction dependent. And there's a lot of control having to even understand the instructions and put them together. Right. So, so free will, right? Internally generated, internally motivated, uh, you know, whatever free will really is. Right. But that internal um, self-organ, you know, wherever it comes from some sort of self-organization process mm -hmm. where it's generated internally, internally, um, I, I don't know. How much do you think that it would overlap um, network-wise with like the riddle types of networks? I guess I'm kind of thinking of there's, there's some set of mechanisms that, um, you know, the language network would uh, interact with in, in these cognitive control networks. So I'm talking about pre lateral prefrontal right. cortex, uh, posterior parietal cortex, um, mid-singulate, part of mid-singulate mid cortex. Um, and what would happen in, in the case of instruction, uh, external instruction would be through, <laughs> you know, auditory cortex, the language cor uh, the language network, and then the cognitive control network. And then maybe, I don't know where it would start, maybe orbital frontal cortex or something where you're representing, you know, the reward that you might receive if you do this other thing might drive selection of, of a set of task rules or strategies for getting those rewards. Yeah. I mean, free will is a tr tricky thing, like, um, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> but I guess my own, you know, as a neuroscientist, I think most neuroscientists, I, I, mean, I don't want to speak for, for everyone, but, um, there's this sense that I get when I speak to neuroscientists about free will is that there is no free will or there's, it's, it's, uh, mechanisms all the way down that, you know, are, are largely determined just by, one's history and, and physical reality. And so I don't think maybe Patrick intended us to, to go down a rabbit hole that deep, but like, um, Oh, I bet he did, but <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it up free well. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I would say that, um, yeah, it's probably going to come down to, uh, reward predictions as for selecting the goal. Like, hmm. uh, and maybe it's the task that you want to perform if, it, if you have like free reign. There's also this funny thing a, a lot of the free will experiments will do. Well, they, they'll give you like two choices and then you just kind of can randomly or, or uh, mm -hmm. like Benjamin Lebet's experiment where it's just press a button whenever you want. There's some, uh, they're called demand characteristics in, in the literature, but like the task is 
to, you know, press the button whenever you want. Well, like if you really ask the person, do they even want to press the button? Like if they really were free, they'd just like walk out of there and do something more fun than, than that. So what they're really <laughs> doing is yeah. forcing you into this situation where you need to decide if you're going to press a button and then you're sitting there and you're like, well, I, I kind of don't like, let's say you didn't even want to press the button at all, but you're like, I have this, the, you know, I have this social pressure to uh, press this button. So I guess um, I'll press it every once in a while. And so there's, there's some little element of free will, but it's also just like, okay, I have to, you know, <laughs> I have all these constraints on my behavior actually. And then there's also this sense of like, it's right. got to appear random, which is not normal for people to be random. So, Right. We're not random. I hadn't heard that. There have been other criticisms of the, of the Libet experiments and we don't need to go through all that because we need to move on. But, right. but I hadn't heard that one that, that um, you are constrained to that particular response. And so that in itself is a bit of a confound, I suppose, for free free will. I mean, so most of the most of these solutions to free will uh, are really reconceptualizations of the concept of of free will. Um, so it's almost like moving the goalposts. But on the other hand, the free will that we commonly want, right? This mm-hmm. um, the sovereignty over all of our actions and thoughts. Uh, I think everyone agrees that that doesn't exist because it, well, most people agree that doesn't exist because it requires some sort of quantum indeterminacy. And then we have to like somehow be in that nexus and be responsible for our own behaviors, you know, or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. So anyway, most of the solutions that I see re- reconceptualize it rightly. So I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, we should move on, but I, I will say that I, I do think we have pretty much the kind of free will that we we actually do want. It's just that I think of it as as long as who I am, my self representation, which is in my brain, is properly controlling or influencing how I behave and what goals I pursue, then that's the kind of free will that we want. It's just that who we are was determined by genetics and our past, right? Anyway, that that's my conceptualization of it. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, let's back out. So thanks, Patrick, for the uh, question. <laughs> yeah. So thanks, Patrick. I'm going to go ahead and play another question because um, it has to do with fMRI. So and and then this will bring us up to speed with the work that we that uh, you've done that we really want to talk about because a lot of your empirical work is is based on fMRI uh, measurements, right? How you construct. Mm-hmm these networks that we're going to talk about. So let me just play this question for you. Hey, Mike, uh, this is Kendrick Kay, and I have a question for you. It's sort of an open-ended question, so really any remark you have along these topics would be appreciated. Uh, I was thinking about your sort of research and your focus. Um, I mean, obviously, you use fMRI as a measurement technique, and you are thinking about computational models of cognition, um, so I guess my question has to do with, uh, the limitations or your wish list, maybe, so to speak, uh, for neuroimaging, uh, I guess specifically fMRI, um, in terms of informing your, uh, network models of computation, what, 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 what do you desire out of fMRI or what do you see are the current limitations? Uh, for example, is it spatial resolution? So obviously fMRI is limited, at least in compared to single neurons or multi-unit activity type recordings. And, you know, fMRI is trying to push the limits there and trying to get higher and higher resolution, but it's, it's from practical sense, pretty far away. 
from small populations of neurons. So do you feel that's a major uh, bottleneck to, say, developing the types of network models that you do? Uh, or alternatively, things like artifacts and head motion and whether you think that's a major problem and whether, you know, that's limiting uh, your progress in the type of research that you do. So I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on sort of whether you're worrying about currently uh, trying to make fMRI better, either in terms of the raw acquired data and or the analyses that we can make of it, uh, again, with the ultimate goal of trying to inform uh, what we can learn about computation in the brain. So he, he mentioned your network coding models. I think he just called mm-hmm. them network models. And we're going to talk about those, the types of models that you build. So if you feel that that was Kendrick K, by the way, uh, if you feel uh, like you need to explain those to, to answer those uh, questions, go for it. Otherwise, we can hold off and, and you can answer the, uh, the, uh, your wish list for fMRI. So yeah, I, I, I have been I'll say this. So in general, in my career, I have these kind of oscillations of um, pessimism versus optimism. And so um, it's actually pretty useful because when I'm in one of the other states, I'm maybe overly optimistic. I'll think back to like my pessimistic views. So at various times, I've been quite pessimistic about fMRI. And then other times I'm quite optimistic. And I have to say overall, I've learned uh, a lot more about computation from fMRI than uh, my most pessimistic uh, phases. And the things that frustrate me the most about fMRI at this point, I think has to do with the temporal resolution because these things have, uh, these network models, which um, we can get, get into in a bit, I've really come to the conclusion that we need to understand causal relationships between neural populations, and that's going to be the key. And mm-hmm. uh, temporal information is very useful, right, for making causal inferences. Um, but it's, it's not the only way, and it's not the only piece of information, but it's quite useful. So I actually have done a, a bit of work with MEG and uh, have started doing more EEG work, mm-hmm. high-density high EEG, because, of course, it's the opposite problem there, where <laughs> more frustrated with the poor. Right spatial resolution. Um, and then, yeah, my uh, frustration has led me to uh, work with some non-human primate data sets recently um, for multi-unit recording, not, you know, collecting the data in my lab. But but really, um, in terms of theory and um, method development, a kind of thought experiment that led to a lot of this the stuff we're going to talk about the network models is uh, was from actually thinking about the perfect kind of neuroimaging technique. If we could record all neurons in real time, what would I do with that? Right. And so that's actually keeps coming up again and again, where I'm just like, Oh, well, you know, I want to, I wish I had that. Here's what I actually have. How do I make do? And try to get closer to that. Would you, would you know what to do with that? I I, I think so. <laughs> it's one of those things where you, you don't know for sure until you go and try it. It'd be probably right. too too much data. I'd have to do data reduction to be honest. But but what would be cool about that is you could sure. pick your data reduction to 
based on theory or something. Right. And get ensembles and 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 do a different analysis that would get different ensembles or something like that. But but yeah, I mean, I guess we get into the network model approach. I mean, I thought about it pretty abstractly, pretty abstractly with doing these thought experiments about like, well, what if it was real, like spiking data or LFPs or something. But the idea is that we have these artificial neural networks and we want to, with this, these algorithms that can dictate how the dynamics play out on a network architecture. You know, if we had the data, uh, we would go in and, and take the, all the detailed connections between all the neurons and maybe we could simulate those dynamics on that network. Now, since we don't have that sort of data, and especially in humans, we are using fMRI, and that's giving us, you know, somewhat decent spatial resolution compared to something like EEG or MEG, um, and um, not great temporal resolution, but we have a lot of tricks up our sleeves for making do. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the main trick is really experimental control, so you can control the timing of stimuli and and responses and so forth. So we can separate different neural events from each other. And uh, then there's a lot of useful connectivity techniques. We could use structural connectivity. We could use, we typically use functional connectivity and we use uh, specifically resting state functional connectivity. And the way I think about that might be a little, I think it's different than a lot of um, people think about it. I should ask, (laughs) make a little survey and ask how people think about this. But I think of resting state connectivity as um, as if you, it's almost like if you could just inject noise into each uh, neural population and see what happens downstream. And, um, but it, you know, it's spontaneous activity. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like just, we're looking at the effects on the statistics of the signal from just these spontaneous ac- activities flowing between different neural populations. And then that gives us a sense of what's called intrinsic functional connectivity. And what we found was that it's really similar across a a bunch of different brain states. So resting state isn't necessarily that special. It's just that um, you've removed some confounds that it might be coming from past stimuli. And um, maybe it's closer to, to something like structural connectivity with maybe the synaptic weights kind of influencing things that's one thing i like about it too mm-hmm. relative to structural connectivity you might you might be getting closer to the actual well ultimately causal influences between them but it's it's really hard to to make strong causal claims all right mike well i've already you know i've buried the lead already but um i thought that those two guest questions were sort of mo- would fit better toward the beginning so <laughs> sure <laughs> and and in fact i don't really know exactly where to start because so what you've done in the paper is uh to take functional connectivity data and in contrast to training up a a model made up of some sort of architecture and otherwise fairly random units and random connectivity um, instead you guys have built models and used uh functional connectivity data to decide the architecture and also decide the weights between the nodes. So you don't train the model. There are sort of two axes that uh, we could talk about. One 
is the difference between uh, your approach and the deep learning Jim DiCarlo, Dan Yeamans type approach, and also with recurrent neural networks where you, you train the network on a cognitive task, like you would train an organism on a cognitive task, and you optimize the network, and then you compare the network to your neural recordings or wh- however you're recording data. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other way, the, the other axis that we could talk about, and I'll let you decide what, what you'd like to, how you'd like to introduce network coding models, is uh, this play between encoding and decoding models, which we've talked right. about on the podcast uh, about a long time ago, and it would be good to refresh people's memory and then use that to to talk about what network coding models are. So do I, is that a fair enough summary? Yeah. Yeah. So we're trying to kind of bypass the the whole like, uh, what's the right learning rule? Uh, how do you update the weights in these networks to just say, Let, let's go look. <laughs> let's go look in the human brain or, or even animal brains would work too if you had the, the right data. And then just parameterize the network that way. Um, and then so there are lots of different things that we are using it for and thinking that, that it's useful for. Um, one is just why well, we can go and like test these artificial neural network theories um, because instead of just doing the same thing of, okay, optimizing for task performance, we can go and see what whether the weights that are there from functional connectivity in the brain, whether the performance or the cognitive effects of interest will just emerge when you go ahead and, and simulate these things. And so it, it, it actually, I use the word em- emergence, which has been, I, I really think that's what we're doing, but I know there's a lot of philosophical baggage with that term. So I, I started using the word like just yeah. generate the, the, the cognitive process of interest, but it's really the same thing. I, I mean, emergence in a very simple sense of like, you know, the property of going 60 miles an hour down a highway you know, emerges from these mechanisms in the car that we understand. Right? It's not some sort of like uh, yeah. a very uh, mysterious Spooky. thing, but yeah. I've been trying to say emergent properties just because it sounds oh, yeah. less uh, sl- less like strong magical emergence. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, right. but I don't know how to turn emergent properties into a verb, so. Oh, right. But. Um, Emerging properties, I guess. Yeah, um, trying to think. So there's that you can test, uh, use these models to test uh, these theories. We can use them to make sense of the neural data. So if you have a connection and you say, oh, I think, you know, this connection is important or, you know, it's it's connecting these two regions, you can have all these different ideas about what it does or is for. But when you build one of these models, it will literally have these what we call activity flows over those connections. And you can go and see, and you can even lesion inside the model and see like, oh, did, what did it do downstream? And the same goes for the activation. So the classic neuroimaging approach of just saying like, where in the brain is this kind of a process? You you do that and it's like, yeah, you learned something, but then, you know, well, what, what does that activity do mechanistically? It's not really clear. And there's uh, typically, you know, there's all this kind of hand wave and trying to interpret it, including in my own work, right? Because you're trying to make some bigger narrative here that you understand what's going on. But, you know, if you actually link it up with connectivity, then you can say, well, oh, this this activity here plausibly, you know, influences activity over here. And then that could lead to 
motor responses and behavior. And so you, you start to maybe have something like uh, an integrated understanding of what's going on. It's not as easy as all that, of course, like I said before <laughs> that, uh, you know, I think it comes down to causal inferences and causal inferences are super hard, but I, I, I think a lot of, um, a lot of people have kind of given up on uh, causality and they'll just use correlations. We've been trying to kind of move past correlations um, for the connectivity estimates because of this. And, and we have made some progress towards more mm. causally valid estimation, but um, yeah, there aren't perfect causal inferences. So we're always pushing towards, uh, you know, more valid measures and, and trying to make clear in inferences here. But it, it's like, I think it's a good starting point. I think we are learning a lot and it's just a matter of, you know, keeping on and, and advancing the methods while we're advancing the theory and kind of making a nice feedback loop there. How, how I mentioned the, like the Jim DiCarlo work using convolutional neural networks to study uh, the ventral visual stream, right? And object right. recognition. How do you think of uh, network coding models in relation to that? Because, you know, one of the strengths of convolutional neural networks, which of course were inspired by the visual system already from way back with Fukushima and up, you know, through Jan LeCun. Um, and, and now those models are the quote unquote best predictive models for brain activity in those regions. And they were roughly modeled. They were, they were built to uh, recreate roughly the hierarchical layers within the ventral visual stream, mm -hmm. um, both in sort of their, their magnitude, the size of each layer and of course, their their ordering. So, um, how does your approach differ, and how do you how do you think about what you're doing relative to that kind of approach? I'd say that our approach is probably more empirically constrained because we not only have the activity patterns that we're constrained by, quote unquote. I mean, and I mean constraints both as like holding us in, but also telling us what how the brain is computing things, right? So it's constraints also in a good way that, um, that we, we have the activity patterns and the connectivity patterns. And so if it works, you know, if it predicts well on, on each layer, say, if you're, we haven't done this, the visual model with the multiple right. layers, but that would be interesting. If it actually did work, then we would say, um, well, maybe we understand more uh, directly how the neural populations are interacting because there's actual this empirical constraint of the connectivity. If you don't have that, then it's an optimization problem and there's a lot of different solutions that would lead to the same predictions without saying that's actually how it works in the brain. Of course, you'd have more constraints than we have and that, that would be nice and then we'd be even more confident, right, that this is exactly how it works in the brain. But that the point is, right, that, that these this key constraint of like, here's actually how the neural populations interact with each other is in there. And um, that could allow for emergence of things, uh, you know, the generation of processes that we don't even think of uh, because, you know, if it is really how the brain is, is working, uh, then, you know, you put in maybe some stimulus that the person you're m modeling from, I guess you could take, uh, one individual, or you could take group data from fMRI or whatever modality and parameterize this, and maybe that 
a person who's never seen that stimulus before and you'd see what happens in the model, that would be interesting to see, would it? And then you actually take that person and have them see the stimulus, would it do the same thing? But yeah, um, I think they're both super useful approaches, but uh, there is this added something about the inferences you can make. And then there's this like potential for, yeah, something that the connectivity is doing, maybe evolution specified it. There's some kind of uh, some kind of bias in the connectivity weights that does something, a model that's optimized for the particular stimuli that were presented during training. Maybe they wouldn't be optimized in the same way. Maybe it's from the person's development or experience that the connectivity weights might have been biased in a particular way, maybe to generalize better. So yeah, there are a lot of questions like that that would be really interesting to it could even yeah be really interesting just to com directly compare them the, the thing is though because it's not optimized for the task performance it's probably going to do worse <laughs> just because there's noise in the data right like even if, if we had perfect yeah. data then i would think it would do better just because humans have a ton of training <laughs> and have evolution like um setting things up for optimal performance to, to some extent but um but yeah, there, there is this idea that we haven't actually explored yet, but um, of also just starting with connectivity and then training on top of that. Um, so that that could be interesting too, right? Like maybe it would speed up training to start from the connectivity and maybe push the model in a certain way. One reason that we're really excited about this activity flow approach and the whole uh, ENN uh, approach is applications to mental health and brain diseases. So we actually had a paper come out recently in Science Advances that looks at schizophrenia. And we build these little, we could think of as simple computational models that predict activity during a working memory task. And what we found is that we can predict the abnormal activations during the working memory task in schizophrenia patients. And it's also predictive of their working memory performance and how they have this deficit in working memory performance. And we took it uh, just to kind of illustrate the power of these kinds of models is we actually took it a step further and made a treatment, a kind of hypothetical treatment that if we could get in and change the connectivity however we wanted, what would happen? And uh, we have this machine learning algorithm that predicts from the healthy individuals and the patients what their working member, memory performance would be. And once we uh, implemented this hypothetical treatment and applied the activity flow algorithm to generate what activations would happen uh, in the context of this treatment, we actually predict a 12% increase in the working memory performance, which puts the patients just about in the normal range. And so, yeah, we're, we're excited about, well, I mean, that's illustrative of the power of this kind of approach for real world applications potentially. And, and so we're excited just about um, the potential for that, but also um, we, we wanna actually start to learn how to change connectivity systematically in other uh, research so that we can actually go and test this stuff. See, I'm really, I'm really glad that there are people like you that are working on these things because diseases uh, are super important and they're not something that I ever uh, cared about in my research, so but but I know that that's like sort of the point, and so uh, it's really great. It's really great that you're <laughs> yeah. focusing on that. Now, now I'm going to have to go ahead and play uh, our last guest question. I think okay. that this is a good time. 
Although, um, you know, I was just talking about these convolutional neural networks, obviously something that um, you've worked on is kind of having like recurrent neural, neural networks and setting them up in an architecture so that they are talking to each other like different brain areas would talk to each other and where you can go and perform multiple tasks. And we can come back to this idea of multiple tasks, um, but you just saying that you've been thinking about training on top of the uh, functional connectivity models um, mm -hmm. made me think of this next question. So final guest question here from your co-author, one of your co-authors. Hi, um, thank you for asking my opinion. I'm always happy to chat. Um, first of all, Mike is great. Um, he and I co-authored a review on multitasking learning um, in RNNs with Robert Yang a few years ago. Um, and two, this is such a clever paper. Um, one of the many holes in the field of computational neuroscience, in my opinion, is that there aren't too many models of RNNs based on human data, fMRI data in particular. Um, Mike is one of the few people thinking deeply in the space. Um, um, and, you know, selfishly, I hope to be working alongside him um, again. Scientifically, uh, both the approaches, you know, using connectivity motifs inferred from fMRI in a generative um, sense in neural network models, like Mike does in this paper, uh, Mike and his team, and training RNNs based on time series or dynamics data directly, uh, like I do, and inferring from the second type of network models, connectivity motifs, I think both of those approaches are perfect complements. Um, the two types of models should also be able to work as constraints for one another. And the reason I'm asking, um, the reason for my question is, you know, functional connectivity is often inferred using, you know, network analyses or graph theoretic methods on the covariance matrix of time series data. Uh, which is, you know, this, you know, n by n object for n units or n voxels. Um, now in types of networks that I build and train, um, to match units activity to time series directly, such a covariance matrix should come along for free. You see, cause every neuron or every voxel is kind of being fit. Uh, but in addition, in my type of models, the recurrent weight matrix should also be dynamically stable. And should work, and you should be able to find one, even if the underlying distribution were to change over time, as it does in the brain. So if you buy both of these things that I said, um, by knowing just the initial condition, we should be able to use this recurrent weight matrix from an RNN fit to dynamics in a generative sense also. You know, almost as if it were hooked up to an actuator. Um, so my question to Mike would be, you know, when would this approach, um, in his opinion, work or fail? And, you know, when I say work, um, I want that to mean to capture dynamics and maybe some features of behavior. And also, um, how would this depend on task complexity and the number of tasks being performed? Um, now I haven't obviously shown any of this directly yet or at all for human data, but, you know, I really would like Mike's thoughts on these. And then also, you know, would he please work with us um, on this problem? Thanks, Paul. All right. Kanaka Rajan. So wow. did you get all that? And Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I got all, all of it, but it sounds awesome. And an invitation for, for collaboration. Yeah. That, well, that's, <laughs> I'm flattered. This is, um, yes, I would like to work on that. <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, let's see, um, some problems I worry about are relevant here, worry about this type of approach. 
and I'm, I'm, so I'm focusing on the negative, but I think it's, it is awesome. And so I'll say that up front, that it, that isn't a really good way to go. I think the things I worry about, uh, so the limitations of fMRI with the temporal resolution in particular. Uh, so the, the kind of recurrent dynamics are uh, going to be difficult to pick up when you're, the neural activity is being filtered through the hemodynamic response function. And so it'll be like, you know, event that's 100 milliseconds long will be spread out over 18 seconds. Um, yeah. Yeah. This function and you can kind of infer when it happened, but it's, it's a rough approximation. Yeah. So we could use some, something called deconvolution to help with that. Potentially uh, Luke Kern in my lab is a postdoc um, in my lab who is uh, currently working on exploring those and trying to validate those approaches more so that that could help but it they aren't perfect but there are still a lot of can there's still a lot of constraints that are there so um it's possible that we could use fMRI data for that uh fitting uh, recurrent neural networks um the other thing i worry about is model complexity um between say two neural populations there are a bunch of different functions that could equally well predict downstream. So you need to take a you know certain strategy for dealing with that. And and one of our strategies has been simplicity, kind of like Occam's razor kind of <laughs> approach. Um, and then adding complexity as necessary. So you know we start out with correlation. It's probably the simplest thing. Actually, covariance without the normalization would be even simpler. But, you know, you move up to correlation, you move. But then we we want to deal with uh, the confounding problem and, and causality. So they're confounders. So it's one region, say, influencing two others. You'll make a false connection between those two others. So we use multiple regression typically to deal with that. So you fit all the time series simultaneously. And then, but then there are nonlinearities. Uh, which we haven't fully gone into, but um, we're finding that there are cases where nonlinearity is really important. I don't know the nitty gritty details of how the recurrent neural networks are fit. Is there some way to, or like with um, multiple regression, for instance, we use regularization to also deal with some of this. It's a, a way of putting a bias into the model to, to simplify things and um, Basically, you can you, you don't fit noise as, as much. You put a bias in there, so so you're not doing as much overfitting. Um, so I wonder if there's some way to do that with, um, however, the recurrent neural networks have fit. But um, yeah, I definitely think you know the actual. I mean, there's evidence the actual brain uses recurrent um, connectivity a ton, um, and there's a lot of really good <laughs> yeah. computational things that come out of that just from artificial neural networks, like uh, the old element nets and um, so forth, like for language. Mm -hmm. And I could imagine for like the kind of paradigms we were talking about with uh, rapid instructed task learning. I forgot to mention Todd Braver. Uh, how, uh, I was in his lab for uh, my postdoc and, and actually Todd helped me, or, you know, we together developed rapid instructed task learning the paradigms and, and the theory. Um, so I, I, I'd only mentioned Walt Schneider, but uh, yeah, Todd uh, played a big role in that. Yeah. And uh, also the network theories. But yeah, so that kind of task requires these sequential 
um, processes. And it's kind of like, yeah, you're, pr you're being programmed to do this little, uh, uh, three rule program. Um, and, uh, that's very different than I guess what artificial neural networks are really good at, like more like pattern recognition kind of thing. It's, this is actually a, a sequence and it requires like temporal control and maintenance of information and updating information in time. And so that is really compatible with the things that uh, recurrent neural networks can do. I was going to say, by the way, it's, it's fun to uh, watch you think about a proposed collaboration in real time and immediately go <laughs> to the negative like a good scientist would. But, uh... <laughs> I, I kind of bookended it, though. I'm, I said positive and then a bunch of negative. And yeah. then at the end, I was like, no, this is totally the way to go. <laughs> So, <laughs> in fact, what happened is you started saying something negative and then oh, caught then, yourself yeah. and then said, oh, I think it's a really good idea, yeah. <laughs> which was good on you. All right. Well, thanks, Kanika, for the question. Thanks for the question, Kanika. Thinking about these. So, so the thing that you and Kanika and um, like Robert Yang are uh, working on are these sort of interregional, like multi-region kinds of models, right? Mm. Whereas... I mean, I think that you you could think of a convolutional neural network as multi-regional, but if you train a convolutional neural network to do perform object recognition, you're training it on one thing essentially, mm -hmm. and of course, um, you know, catastrophic forgetting is a problem in artificial networks, and so is continual learning. Do you see the the advent of these multi-regional kinds of networks, whether they're inferred from empirical data like yours are? or trained on the current flows like like Konica's are, or the more traditional uh, train a recurrent network on cognitive a set of cognitive tasks um, like Robert Yang is doing. Do you, do you think that the interplay between these regions will help us explain, especially in a multitask sort of environment, um, will help us explain properties of empirical data that wouldn't be explained by training on one task in one network. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's plausible. I don't know exactly why mechanistically though. I'm trying to think of, well, I think actually it's the, um, what they call it the inductive biases is, is one term that's out there for the kind of things that evolution mm -hmm. brings to the table and, and actual biological systems, and and maybe those biases are toward generalization, and so that that might be the way you know we discover what those are, and then we can start using those in artificial neural networks too. So that's kind of I, I kind of alluded to that sort of idea, like if we did you know the Jim Carlo style network, but using empirical connectivity, maybe that would generalize better um, for vision. I don't know. But uh, certainly, yeah, I can imagine there's all sorts of different processes for um, generating flexible behavior that would have been, you know, supposedly selected for during evolution that would uh, maybe shape how development happens or how, yeah, just the brain is organized as a whole. And then on top of that, there'd be these learn there are these learning algorithms that fine tune things, but uh, maybe the, the these uh, biases in the network organization are key. That would be my guess. I don't know about whether it's important to have a lot of regions or, you know, it's really about the number of units or, well, one thing that 
yeah, I've kind of wondered about actually is um, what, what's different about what, what we do is we, lo- we look at the empirical brain connectivity and it's quite sparse, at least if you're not using correlation, it's quite, it's quite sparse. If you look at the structural connectivity hmm. at the, at the like large scale, um, it, whereas, you know, artificial neural networks will start out with these like all doll connections that are randomly weighted. And I do wonder if um, sparsity is, a, is a, a big role here. That's just the beginning now, right? Like sparsity and then what, you know, what, what is it about the particular organization yeah. that's helping shape activity flow and create these computations that generalize? One of the reasons why I'm asking, and I'm going to kind of keep pushing on this just a little bit, uh, just to build up, I suppose, is something like uh, a Jim DiCarlo convolutional neural network trained to to perform object recognition. And that's not really what vision is, right? To Hmm. solve static objects, because we're in this constant flow uh, of doing quote unquote vision while we're doing seven other things. um, And you know, uh, paying attention to our internal uh, homeostatic signals, et cetera, et cetera. But, and it's not enough just to like show movies because yes, that's that's movement, but it's also still embedded in this sort of here is a task um, framework where the world is much more, and I guess I could um, allude to the push for ecologically valid tasks, but I'll still say task, but, but our interaction with the world is much more dynamic and flowing. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm wondering if you if you think that, and I'll, and here I'll say emergent properties, right? So if you if you think that using these kind of interregional um, approaches, where you have more dynamic interactions among the different regions, however they're connected, et cetera, uh, whether you know we we might be able to explain inch closer to explaining um, more of uh, our subjective awareness or our our internal cognitive flow um uh, you know of of processing that we experience that was a mouthful sorry yeah yeah <laughs> that's really interesting so yeah so i think in order to really get the kind of dynamic interactions with the world we're really going to need to be modeling multiple brain regions at the same time but but not just that but how they interact with each other and so we've really emphasized going all the way ideally from stimulus to response we focus really on that feed forward process for now. And it's really about experimental tractability there. Um, but the key is, right, you, there's no one brain region that's going to go all the way from stimulus to response. So we're really <laughs> going to need all these inter-brain region interactions. And then, uh, yeah, once we get the feed forward process figured out, you know, in some probably limited context, because it's a huge challenge, um, then I can imagine worrying more about feedback, which is going to be, you know, let's say the feed forward processes uh, in a lot of contexts, it's most of the problem, right? If you're just like kind of passively, I don't know, watching TV or uh, playing a video game or something, maybe that's most of it, but um, other contexts, it's, it's just a small part of it. In reality, most contexts, feed forward and feedback are just constantly dynamically yeah. updating with action perception cycle. Um, but yeah, I mean, at, at a minimum, yeah, you'd want multiple brain regions involved in your model. And so what we found is that if we took the activity from those 
things I just described, you know, the, the sensory input, the task context or rule representations, and also the, the motor responses, then we were able to actually simulate that and, and generate a, a task performing model from empirical brain data. The trickiest part was, was in the middle, like how do you integrate the task rule representations? So they're going, there's activity flowing through the resting state connections somewhere and there's sensory information flowing through the resting state connections somewhere and we want to know where is that and that's equivalent to the hidden layer in an artificial neural network it's just like it's just thrown out there like oh mm -hmm. clearly there's this hit, hidden layer and in the literature it's talked about as association cortex which is most of cortex in, in humans right so it's like where is that exactly right so this is part of the this is kind of the pro, a, a major issue um, and actually an opportunity for advancing understanding by saying like, no, let's actually figure out what, where th this theoretical construct, the hidden layer it, it is. These are the connection, or sorry, these are the conjunction hubs. Conjunction hubs, hubs uh, is what we call it, yeah. So because it, it's, yeah. hidden layer actually plays a lot of different roles in a lot of different networks. So in this particular right. situation, uh, it's at the conjunction between uh, the context uh, you know, task rule representations and uh, stimulus input. Um, and then, so what we ended up doing, um, so there were a lot of different strategies we thought of. What we ended up doing is actually building an artificial neural network that could perform the task. Um, and then looking at what's called the representational geometry of the hidden layer, and then using a, a representational similarity analysis to look at where which brain regions have a similar representational geometry. So they, you know, the similarity of the activity patterns matches what's going on in the hidden layer. So just to go over this preprint, uh, it's Ito et al. 2021 preprint on the ENN. There are basically uh, three, let's say four steps to it. So what we, the big idea is that we wanted to take the actual empirical brain data for that activity patterns and use empirical function connectivity to link together these different brain regions all the way from stimulus to response. And so we start with the sensory input, we decode sensory areas to ensure that we actually have the information that's relevant to the task in these regions. We then uh, also decode the task context. So this is all using that pro paradigm that I talked about earlier, by the way. Mm -hmm. So you have all these 64 different task rules that are recombined. We decode each of those tasks and, and find brain regions that actually have that information in them. We then uh, use functional connectivity to uh, simulate the activity flow that would go into what we might call the hidden layer or uh, what we, we call specifically conjunction hubs because it's the conjunction between the sensory input and task context. We then apply a nonlinearity there. Uh, which turns out to, to be pretty important. And then after that, we do another activity flow step to M1, so the output regions. And then that's our prediction of behavior, right? So we've gone all the way from sensory input to mm -hmm. motor output in a context-dependent decision-making task. And then we decode uh, what motor response is happening. And it's not just a normal decoding, by the way. It's it's trained on actual empirical. This is how people press buttons, and this is what happens in primary motor cortex when they do. So we're actually um, decoding in the form of, that M1 uses to represent 
these button presses and then we get above chance accuracy. So that's, that's actually a, a full task performing brain model from empirical data. Without training, with, with zero Without training, training, just yeah. using the, the uh, that's awesome. I'm trying to think, oh yeah, the other thing that theory predicted that made us think we were really going to have to do this, but we weren't totally sure, was um, whether we needed a nonlinearity at the hidden layer. So there, uh, there's a model by uh, uh, John Cohen, uh, Dunbar, and uh, Jay McClellan in 1990. It's a Stroop model where they introduced this uh, context layer to complement the hidden layer. So that we think of that as like, you know, mm -hmm. where, where the rules are represented as the context layer. Um, so they made a big deal in that paper about the nonlinearity and the hidden layer is really important. It's kind of like an attention kind of mechanism where it's you're selecting the representations that are going to um, basically filter the stimuli according to the task context so that you select the correct motor responses. Um, and so lo and behold, we did need a nonlinearity just like we thought we would. Um, I mean, for theoretical reasons, you, you think so, right? Because it's context-dependent decision-making. You need this interaction so that it's like contingent, right? So if the stimulus, the stimulus can go to totally different motor responses, the same exact stimulus, but it depends on the rule. And so that there's a nonlinear interaction that has to happen so you could select the correct one. So, so I thought that was pretty cool that that came out of the, the work. One of the things that I like that... Um that you are in pursuit of is so, so you have connections, right? And it's all networks and you can talk about the properties of those connections. This is like network neuroscience, right? Where mm. you talk about path length and, um, the, you know, different metrics of how to characterize a static, essentially network. Yeah. Uh, and then you have functional, um, connectivity between them. And what your work is doing is, is bringing those two things together. Mm. Do you think that, but it's it's still essentially all networks, right? Do you think that um, this sort of network vernacular and approach, also looking at the dynamics, and like you just were talking about the nonlinearities, mm. uh, but and looking at activity flows within networks, do well, you think that's going to be enough to quote unquote explain cognition, or do we will we need to talk about multi scale, multi multi level scale? of organizational uh, components? Yeah, so one reason I went down this path of um, making these uh, empirically estimated neural networks or these uh, network coding models, um, whichever term you want to use, was to make that an empirical question, basically. Um, it, it was a bit like, you know, <laughs> do I think... I, I really had a couple of moments like this where I'm like, do I think that this is the real connectivity like they use in models? And I said, I don't know, maybe not, but I should try it and see, you know, and then I've been surprised, you know, that it, you know, these things, uh, I'm sure there's going to be limits to it, but um, it does seem to be some sort of equivalence there. And so I, uh, like I said earlier about the, um, so I was saying, like, we probably won't be able to, like, model someone playing a complex piano piece using fMRI. There's going to be similar limits at whatever right. scale we, we are. And I'm, I'm, but I'm hopeful, right? I, I think it's plausible to say, like, we could make these tasks that are a little bit artificial, but still informative enough 
uh, you know, it's a forced choice between two button presses because maybe we can, you know, decode the right versus left hand <laughs> really easily or something like that. Um, and but you can still get the the key network computations, the network mechanisms, um, as long as you, you know, maybe construct the task appropriately. Like if we were able to do that, I would be very happy. And then it would be like, oh no, we can't, you know, do this really subtle thing. And then, yeah, then you'll have to get into, you know, very fine grained things. Uh, there's also always the question of like, like when I say, okay, um, there's this connectivity pattern between these two regions and I have all these, you know, voxels inside there. So it's like pretty fine grained on, on, in some sense, but you always could say like these, between these two voxels, what exactly is the uh, physical basis of that? And you go all the way down to individual synapses and explaining that, right? So th there's always levels here. It's just whether we ha are at a level where we can say we're pretty satisfied with our explanation of this cognitive process. Um, and I'm hopeful that, you know, we'll get pretty far at this level, but you never know till you try. Oh, see, there's more more uh, optimism also. Uh, yeah, I guess I was overall <laughs> optimistic, wasn't I? <laughs> so, Mike, this is ostensibly a show about neuroscience and AI. <laughs> and, you know, often what gets left uh, off the table in these conversations, and I'm going to make sure and include it in ours, is the potential for, like, your work, for instance, and this kind of approach for actually influencing and benefiting AI because right mm -hmm. now we're in a this place where you know we're using all these deep learning we uh, you guys are using all these deep learning models even though you hate learning and don't use deep learning of course but <laughs> um, but the deep learning model approach is um, is uh, the flow I'll say is much more toward neuroscience and benefiting how we're understanding brains but of course um, the whole deep learning approach was began the whole deep learning approach began with the concepts of concept of neural networks right? right so so the activity flow does go both ways do you feel like um these models that you're building for instance uh will have implications for or benefits for ai uh yeah it, it's actually on multiple fronts i guess if you you resume out a little bit um so the one reason I was interested in the rapid instructed task learning stuff was because um, I am actually interested in learning, but I, I'm interested in how, you know, humans learn some things much more rapidly than artificial neural networks. And so, you know, it's possible that some of the insights we get from uh, the riddle work will translate into, you know, being able to just instruct a machine verbally to do some tasks like you would another person. Mm. Um, and also just the general ability to flexibly reorient to or, and reuse concepts and uh, I guess task rules or task information. And then in terms of activity flow models uh, like the ENNs, um, that's that's a little bit more where I'm just yeah I think I already described a little bit just like will something emerge from these things that uh, is in biological tissue that we're able to simulate and then just be kind of surprised by its ability to generalize. It's a little more of a bottom up kind of thing than, than the riddle work where we're, we're, you know, we have this kind of cognitive theoretical target. And I get, I guess because, you know, 
I am trying to merge the two whenever I can. That that would be the ultimate, right? If if it was like we we simulate riddle and then uh, it works, and then it's like we we dig into how the model is working, and we say, oh, this if if AI models just did this one thing, you know, it would generalize to yeah. allow generalization. Is this along the same lines as like the system one, system two? the um you know Kahneman system one system two difference and or the uh ai needs a prefrontal cortex push from bingio and o'reilly and those sorts of folks do you see that yeah it's totally related to that yeah so like yeah i worked with walt schneider who you know had had the controlled versus automatic processing which maps like even you know i believe Kahneman (laughs) said it maps one-to-one to to the system one system two concept um, so yeah, I mean, controlled processing, but this particular, uh, flavor of controlled processing that is really about novel task behavior and transferring, um, abilities into novel situations and that, which is directly related to, uh, general human intelligence, which is another topic that I, I, uh, really dug into when I was working with Todd Braver. So General fluid intelligence is this really fascinating concept in psychology that's really about individual differences and is directly related to uh, riddle abilities. Um, they, they actually correlate oh. quite strongly. And so if we could really, you know, figure out what's going on, like why do, why do humans have this? Um, it's, in the, it's, a, it's a factor analytic thing that you can see in the statistics that, that each individual seems to have this general ability that generalizes across a bunch of different tasks um what is that you know where where is that in the brain and like what's the mechanism behind that you know maybe once we figure that out we can copy that over for ai and and then i guess there's the the term artificial general intelligence and i'm talking about natural general intelligence right and maybe there's some way to learn from one and take it over to the other well are are those um control processes are are we going to be talking more like in symbols and rather than lower level network properties are we going to end up you know having having this mesh between symbolic uh and neural network type of uh architectures from what i understand that was a really hot topic like in the late 1980s early 1990s and it was it's seemed to back. be going that back. way and then it yeah it, yeah <laughs> that's when i read about i read about it more uh you know Right, the old literature. So I don't, I haven't been following the recent stuff, but I, I guess my, you know, having thought about it for a long time now from that, that older literature, my thought was, you know, let's just figure out how the actual biological tissue does the symbol like stuff. And then, right. uh, then we can still just stay in this distributed architecture. And you have the benefit of, right, like mapping potentially one to one onto the human brain, like we're trying to do with the ENNs. Um, right. If we start putting in these abstract symbolic modules, then it'd be like, well, where, where exactly uh, <laughs> it does it map onto? And then it's like, can we go any deeper into that? Not really. I guess you might be able to find, you know, it maps onto a brain region, but not the inner workings. I bet wouldn't, you know, map very well. So very good. Well, so in our final few minutes here, and thanks for hanging with me for so long. What do you? I, I know you're you're working on multiple fronts. We we talked mostly uh, about just one of the things that you're working on, but I just want to ask you what uh, like last night after you brushed your teeth, you know, and 
uh, flossed and put your anti-aging cream on, you know, and uh, laid down. Uh, what, what did you think about what, what, what kept you up longer than you should have been up? Um, you know, I thought, uh, or I, I, I mentioned earlier something about causal inference and I guess that keeps coming, coming up hmm. for me as, you know, central to not just what I'm working on, but really neuroscience and science in general, you know, it's a really hard problem, especially in complex systems like, um, you know the brain and even these AI systems. So one big idea that uh, we've been pursuing in my lab is just this idea of using causality as a kind of common ontology for different areas of neuroscience. And it's really based on a general hypothesis that causal interactions among neural populations, uh, we are really thinking that those will end up being the most critical features for explaining the neural basis of cognition. Uh, of course, there's mm. a lot of other things, but if you have things, if you have neural processes described in terms of causal properties and these kind of activity flow processes that I've been talking about, then that's going to maybe be the main way of describing like an explanation for how some kind of cognitive process emerges, uh, is generated. So um, there's tons of other details, of course, but you could think of them more as modifying that process, right? That sets of processes. So you have a nonlinearity at one step. That's about, you know, selecting a subset of the activity flows that then uh, change how things happen downstream. Um, you also have lots of concepts like uh, confounders, um, causal colliders that would <laughs> take a while to get into. But all of those things, I think, together are going to be really important hmm. for getting explanations for brain function and uh, how cognition emerges from uh, neural populations, the, the kind of explanations that would be actually satisfied by potentially. Oh yeah. And one, one thing I will say that I've been, I've been thinking about recently um, along these lines is the concept of uh, what I, I call causal sufficiency. So I, I don't know, maybe, you know, this is already out there. I just haven't come across it, but the idea is, you know, even if you ablate or lesion a region, you, you can show that it's causally necessary, but you don't know if that brain right. region, say, was causally sufficient to make the cognitive process. And that's where these models can come in, right? Uh, like the ENN or, or even an ANN uh, or, or any sort of model, right? You, you actually generate the process and you could show, especially if it's empirically constrained, you can say, this is equivalent in all these ways to the actual biology and then where it generates the cognitive process of interest. So, you know, at the very least it's causally sufficient. And um, then, you know, you also would like to have some of these lesions and stimulation to show causal necessity potentially, but you could even imagine like, say there's like two different pathways that can accomplish the same cognitive process. So you, you ablate one and it does nothing potentially, you ablate the other, it does nothing, but really they're both causally maybe sufficient for generating the cognitive process. Yeah, that's that speaks to work like from, you know, like Eve Martyr and the idea of multiple realizability and how, you know, in the end anyway, mm -hmm. we're actuating our muscles, right, to perform some task. So it might, right. you, you might get away with being pretty ugly internally and still come out with the right uh, behavior. And, you know, this is what everyone's 
interested in, I suppose, or what we're testing, the vast majority of it is, is behavior anyway. Right. Yeah, I, I did have some interesting re- reviews for something that I was working on with the ENN where I was emphasizing behavior. And that's like kind of the, it was, I felt like it was like a, a holy, the holy grail. Like if I can predict behavior well, you know, that's how, right. you know, things are indexed. But then I had like some reviewers say, well, like all you're doing is predicting motor behavior. You know, what about cognitive process? I'm like, I'm like, oh, what? Like, we, that, <laughs> that's what we have been doing. And it's the innovation is that we're getting all the way to behavior now. <laughs> <laughs> so then I just, all I have to say is like, no, we've been doing that. <laughs> that's, 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 you have to make the cognitive process to influence, you know, predict M1 behavior. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. And they accepted? Oh, I, I'm still in the process of, oh, all right. I, I haven't well, submitted to, it yet. So we'll continue. see. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Maybe they'll hear this explanation and be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll push the, oh, I can't, I got to air it in a few days, man. I can't push this out until it's accepted. So, sorry. Uh, but, right. um, we'll we'll <laughs> no, bleep that, I suppose. <laughs> um, so, f- finally, Mike, uh, I, I want to ask you career, a, a career type question here. So, um, I knew you back in graduate school. I know you did a lot of stuff before that. You've had a lot of good advisors, you know, throughout, and I know you've worked extremely hard, which I've always been impressed with. Uh, it seems like you're always on focus and on point. I'm wondering if there's a time throughout your career or, you know, a specific time, or I'm sure there are multiple times, but if you could tell a story about some time that when you feel like luck played a integral part of some success in your career. Um. Yeah, so I guess um, the early interest in what later became known as network neuroscience. Uh, yeah, like, mm. and I guess that really started in, in Mark Desposito's lab. I just lucky that, that I ended up in his lab and then continued along that line. Um, and it, the reason it's lucky is because it's beyond me that, you know, the rest of the field really went in that direction so that, you know, I could, I didn't have to swim upstream i guess to like mm. make progress on that I, I, there was really a current going and and um and then also that i was at washington university so that's when i was working with todd braver and also steve peterson when the human connectome project was started there i wasn't actually involved in it but i was right there and i had all these advantages for like knowing about it and what it involved and being able to like ask questions about the data early on and 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 that was just like this treasure trove of of you know questions that we could ask without having to even even collect new data we just ask a bunch of questions and with you know and the analyses took a long time and were a lot of work but it, it wasn't nearly as hard as you know designing experiments and uh, also you know designing experiments and collecting data and then the the large n actually made for much more robust conclusions mm. and uh, statistics so so anyway, all that, 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 I have to say that was, that was luck. Is it possible to parlay that kind of serendipity into advice for aspiring people? Maybe people who aren't, don't, who feel like they, <laughs> they haven't been so lucky or they are swimming upstream. Is it even possible or is it just, is the only thing to say um, that those are just uh, lucky events? I'll say that, you know, 
there are a lot of people at WashU uh, when I was there that didn't work with the Human Connector Project data. So, I mean, I, I guess it's like, what's that saying? Like, seize the day. Luck favors the prepared mind. Or, I know that. <laughs> seize the day. That, that works too. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Just really look for opportunities wherever you are and, and, and kind of, you know, it, it required me to change what I was going to do, right? Like, mm. or, you know, even if I didn't even have a plan, you know, I, I made that my plan instead of something else. So it wasn't pure, you know, like I'm just totally passive. Uh, there was some kind of like, yeah, seizing the opportunity. And then there's also, I guess in this particular case, um, some intuition. So I don't know. I don't know if that's like, you can totally plan on that, but. Oh, also be smart. <laughs> yeah. Just like, just like, think plausibly you know if this trend this or this little this little idea actually because it was before it was a trend i guess or early early days of the trend um if this kept going is it even plausibly going to lead to anything it was like okay the brain is a network you know we already have known that forever so like yeah studying the brain as a network seems like a good idea so you know (laughs) that kind of general logic i think uh, could help, but yeah, I mean, it, you can't really make general advice on this. I don't think it's it's just like in this case, oh, you know, hard. these are yeah. important factors. Yeah. It's like the, the yeah, the only advice you can give is like you have to work super hard and be and and develop skills in whatever you're doing, and I guess be willing to change, right? And seize the day when something like that comes along and it feels right and seems right. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, what is that called? Like. Uh, exploration exploitation trade-off or yeah but then boy that, that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole other bag to open yeah <laughs> but yeah you have to explore <laughs> and then exploit 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 and then explore <laughs> and I, I don't know the but i don't know the perfect pattern for that either that's something yeah, a I recurring theme actually that i, I don't oh, yeah. know that there's the right uh, that i can't that i can write out that algorithm but right all right all right. I won't keep you any longer. Thank you, Mike, for coming on. Thanks for answering those guest questions as well. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I love the work and continued uh, success to you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's been great talking and, and the guest questions were a, a real highlight. It, it was great to hear from <laughs> some old friends. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stare